how many of you ever in your lifetime, how many of you have ever watched your calorie intake? Raise your hand if you've ever watched your calorie intake. Okay, a good portion of you. Well, if you know anything about me, I too really, really watch my calorie intake. Hey, to keep this beanpole figure, it is really, really difficult. And I've been working hard at it for many, many years now. You can ask my wife. I I watch my calorie intake every day. Actually, that's absolutely not true. Um, One day I will. One day I will. And you will all laugh at me then. In the meantime, I want to pose the question, why, why do we watch our calorie intake? Why do we watch it? See how high it can get? <laughs> Why do we watch how many calories go into our body? Because we're worried about our we're worried about our weight. We're worried about our health. Okay, that's good. Both 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 are true. We're worried about our weight. We're worried about our health. It's it's worth it to us to watch our calorie intake so that we don't get you know uh, out of proportion. We're trying to watch ourselves. We're trying to keep ourselves in shape. And when we watch our calorie intake. That's one way that we can keep ourselves healthy and fit. But it's got to be worth it. You know, uh, my wife, uh, anytime she's uh, watching her calorie intake, which uh, shouldn't ever happen, but nevertheless, occasionally she does. And, and occasionally she'll be watching her calorie intake and she'll see like a cheesecake before her. And she'll be thinking, is it really worth it though? You know, she starts looking at that cheesecake and she's like, but, but, if, but if I'm going to take that cheesecake... Uh, you know, I want to know, is it really worth it to take that cheesecake and to put that into my body? So we're always evaluating, is it worth it? In our story in Mark, our story in the Gospel of Mark today, Jesus is going to be speaking a parable. He's going to be offering a story. And He's going to be demonstrating in that story that something is worth it. In Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, we're going to read a story called the parable of the vineyard. And in the parable of the vineyard, Jesus is going to declare very, very clearly and in no uncertain terms that the vineyard, the vineyard is worth it. The title of my message today is The Vineyard Must Be Worth It. The Vineyard Must be worth it. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the story of the parable of the vineyard. Now, we're not going to read it in its entirety up front. We're going to read it in bits and pieces. But take a look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, as we begin the story, the parable of the vineyard. It says this, Then He, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables, A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat or wine press, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Now I want to ask the question uh, right off the bat here who is Jesus speaking to? Who is Jesus speaking to? It says in, the, in verse 1 there that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Well, if you look back 
at the previous section. Remember last week's study? Take a look at Mark uh, 11, if you will. And uh, uh, who is he speaking to in verse 33? Anybody? Who is Jesus speaking to in Mark 11:33? He's speaking to the religious authorities, isn't he? He's speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, the members of the Sanhedrin. In particular, if you look back at verse 27 of Mark 11, it says that as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they began a dialogue which continued through that, that section of Mark. And so as we finished the story from last week, and as we enter the story this week, when it says that Jesus began to speak to them in parables, the most likely uh, antecedent, to use a technical term, the most likely uh, subject is the one that came before it. Jesus is still speaking to the Sanhedrin. He's still speaking to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel. Now, it's very likely that He's also speaking to the disciples and to a multitude that is gathered, as we noticed from last week. But make no mistake, the parable we're about to read was spoken directly to the leaders of Israel. And he uses some very common farming analogies, doesn't he? Jesus begins to speak of a story of a vineyard. He says, a man planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine press, the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. And at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Friends, this was very, very common imagery in first century Israel. Um, there were, at G- in Jesus' day, there were small farms that previously had been owned by, by uh, you know, Jewish landowners, these small farms. But over time and through the, the, the process of Rome entering the land and the, and the Gentiles stirring things up, those small farmers got booted off their land. And those small farms began to get collected into large estates. And these small, once, uh, these small farmers who once owned their land now became uh, really the poor Jewish tenants of large estates. These large, wealthy Jewish landowners and occasional Roman landowners would would own the estates and would lease it back to the previous farmers, the previous owners of the small farm, and would expect a return. Uh, This is no different than any uh, commercial lease we might deal with today. Someone owns the land and they rent it. But Jesus is not merely using the imagery of the vineyard because it's common in the first century. There's another reason why Jesus is using the imagery of the vineyard. And if you have a pen and and you're next to your Bible, I want you to write Isaiah 5 right next to Mark 12. Write down Isaiah 5 and take a look at what we're going to see here. Isaiah 5, 1-2 says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He also built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. And he expected, them, he expected it to bring forth good grapes. Friends, are those parallels uncanny or what? He dug it up, 
saw that in Mark 12. Cleared out the stones. He set a hedge around it, right? Planted it with the choicest vine. Put a tower in it. We see that in Mark 12. Put a wine press. We see that in Mark 12. Expected fruit. Now go back to our text for a moment. Back to verses 1 and 2. Clearly, friends, we're seeing some remarkable, remarkable correspondence between Mark 12 and Isaiah 5. So much so that it, it uh, can be virtually indisputable that Jesus in Mark 12 is drawing Israel's attention, if they have eyes to see it, back to Isaiah 5. Now, we're going to stop in Isaiah 5 right now. We, we're not going to read the whole thing yet. We will in a moment. But keep that in mind, that, the parallel, that, the, that what we're reading in Mark 12 is Jesus drawing on Old, Old, Testament, literature, uh, Old Testament imagery. Now, one more thing about Mark 12, verses 1 to 2, that's of significance. Um, and this is also a little bit technical, but bear with me. Um, there's something called the, 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 the Targum in, uh, in uh, ancient Near East terminology. The Targum is an Aramaic interpretation and translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me say that again. The Targum is an Aramaic. Aramaic was the language that Jesus and the, the people of, of uh, first century Palestine would have spoken. It is an Aramaic, the Targum is, an Aramaic translation and interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures of our Old Testament. And in the Targum, in the Targum, it is noted when, when, we, when you come across Isaiah 5, verse 2, that speaks of the tower. Okay, that speaks of the tower in the middle of the vineyard. In the Targum, it is suggested that the tower in Isaiah 5, verse 2, is meant to correspond to the Jew Jerusalem temple. I'll say that again. The tower in Isaiah 5, 2 was meant to correspond to the Jerusalem temple. Now, that's not to suggest that that's what God intended the tower to refer to. Uh, the Targum is merely, again, an interpretation. Um, but it is to say that in Jesus' day, when the people heard of a tower in a vineyard, they're most likely, uh, what they most likely thought of as they listened to this story about a tower in the midst of a vineyard was they thought of the Jerusalem temple for good or for bad. That's what came into their minds. And so Jesus is very likely using this Jewish perspective to His advantage. After all, Jesus' actions in the Jerusalem temple have already taken center stage here in the Gospel of Mark. And it would make sense that having come so close off of chapter 11, having, some, having come so close off of come on the heels of Jesus' actions in the temple in Mark 11, it would make sense that in Mark 12, Jesus would use the tower in the vineyard imagery. It makes sense. Now, keep that in the back of your mind for now. But back to our story. Let's see what happens when the owner of the vineyard sends a servant back to retrieve the harvest. Take a look at verse 3. It says this. Uh, let's uh, conclude with verse 2 there again. Now at vintage time, he, the landowner, sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him. 
and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. One servant goes to retrieve the harvest at the command of the owner of the vineyard. And the tenants of the vineyard beat him up. So a second servant was sent. And the tenants of the vineyard attempt to stone him. And so a third is sent. And the tenants of the vineyard kill him. And so a fourth and a fifth and a sixth was sent. Many, many servants were sent to retrieve the harvest. And some were beaten and others were killed. Now Jesus is telling a story. He's speaking metaphorically here. But not not long after this story, He would make a more explicit statement to make it undeniably clear of what He is referring to. Take a look at this statement in Matthew by Jesus Christ. It says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the One who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. At the onset of the parable, it would have been readily apparent based on the imagery back in Isaiah chapter 5, it would have been readily apparent of who the owner of the vineyard was. But now it is clear, it is becoming clear, that the tenants of the vineyard are being likened to a particular group whom Jesus is talking to. I want to ask the question and we want to fill in some blanks here. Who's who in the parable of the vineyard? Who is it that Jesus is speaking of and and who do those people correspond to? Let's take a look here. First, the owner of the vineyard. That's the Lord. The Jews who heard Jesus' story would have known this right off the bat. They wouldn't have had to think very hard. They wouldn't have had to go back very far to recognize that the, the owner of the vineyard in the Old Testament is a very common imagery for God over Israel. And so, what's not listed up here, but what should be listed up here, is that the vineyard is Israel herself. The vineyard is Israel herself. Secondly, the tenants of the vineyard are being likened to the religious leaders of Israel. This much is becoming very clear now in the story. And the religious leaders themselves are going to recognize this at the end of the story. So we know that they themselves receive it as such. And the servants of the owner, the prophets, The prophets. The servants that are being sent on behalf of the owner are being likened to the prophets. The prophets that the Lord God sent to Israel in hopes that she might repent of her sin and return to God. Um, You can turn to uh, passages like Jeremiah 25, verse 4 if you want to see the imagery between servant and prophet. It's made very clear in those kinds of passages. Jeremiah 25.4 Friends, Israel and her leaders 
had been given many chances to hear from God's prophets, to hear from God's servants. And that's precisely what is mentioned as we continue on in the passage back in Isaiah chapter 5. Take a look at the effort that God has made unto Israel in Isaiah 5. It says this. Let's go back to 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fruitful, fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted the choicest vine, built a tower in its midst, perhaps the temple, and also made a wine press in it. Uh, also, the wine press was perhaps understood as the altar, according to the Targum, interestingly enough. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? What more could have been done? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Sorry, that last line didn't get seen there. Let me read 3 and 4 one more time. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. Tell me, tell me, evaluate this. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? And why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? God has given Israel time to turn. He has sent the prophets, the servants on His behalf to see if Israel would have any fruit to offer, any harvest to offer. What more could have been done? What more could have been done? God asks in Isaiah. In Isaiah, the answer is, none more could have been done. Nothing more could have been done. But by contrast, in Jesus' parable, something else is done. Let's take a look at Mark 12, verse 6. Therefore, still having one Son, His Beloved, He also sent Him to them, the tenants, saying, They will respect My Son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill Him. And the inheritance will be ours. Therefore, still having one Son, His Beloved. Some, some imagery there that should take us back to different passages in Mark, particularly Mark 1.11 and Mark 9.7, in which Jesus is described as what kind of Son of the Father? This is My Beloved Son. As we complete our who's who in the parable of the vineyard, the fourth and final imagery that we need to recognize is that the Son, the beloved Son of the owner is none other than, than Jesus Christ. The beloved Son of the owner is none other than Jesus Christ. What's also unique about this term beloved is that you'll notice it three times in Isaiah 5.1. Three times in Isaiah 5.1. The imagery here is, is, is deep. It goes deep. The schemes of the vine dressers 
Surely, surely we're meant to correspond to the schemes of the religious leaders against, his, against Jesus. They saw the Son and they said, let's kill Him. Because if we do, the inheritance will be ours. And I want to ask that question actually for a moment. Why, why did the tenants think that killing the owner's son would give them an inheritance claim on the vineyard? Why did they think that killing the owner's son would give them an inheritance claim on the vineyard? You know, we might think, well, but the owner is still in existence. So why did that cross their mind? And, and to, be, to be clear, um, there's just a lot of speculation here. I don't have a firm answer for you. Because we're, we're not in the first century. We don't know exactly how they thought on every matter. And, and on this one, it's, it's a little bit fuzzy. But I want to offer you two alternatives here, which are pretty good options for why they would have thought in this way. First, perhaps they knew the owner of the vineyard resided too far away, which it says he was in a far country, or was too weak, too old perhaps, to come and make a claim on the property himself. Again, stay in the story. Don't think of it in terms of, of you know, the, the, the correspondence between the father, the son, and Israel. Stay in the story. And perhaps in first century Israel, if the owner didn't show up, it was an indication that he was weak. He was old. He was frail. Secondly, perhaps they were hoping to lay claim to Jewish squatters' rights. If you, if you know what a squatter is, it's, uh, uh, this happens in a lot of foreign countries where um, very poor people who are residing on a piece of land. In particular, I saw this happen in uh, the Philippines. Uh, when I visited the Philippines, I would, I would drive by train tracks and I would look up the, up the way and all along the train tracks were just these small huts, these small insignificant homes right alongside within 10 feet of the train tracks. And I would ask, what, who, who are these people? And they said, well, they're squatters. And I said, well, what does that mean? It's because they had settled there and if they had settled there long enough, if they had stayed there long enough, the government of the Philippines would actually recognize the rights of the squatters to stay on that land. They would not necessarily give them ownership of the land, but the, at the very least, the government of the Philippines, if someone had, had literally squatted on, had sat down, had, had pitched their tent on a section of land for a long enough period of time, for a number of years, and no one else had laid claim to that land, the squatter, the person who had done that in their family could claim rights to that land. They could not be moved without significant government intervention. And it's very possible here that the tenants of the vineyard are of the same persuasion. They're saying if we possess the land and don't pay rent on that land for a period of time, maybe four or five years, then we can claim ownership of this land. Then we can claim ownership of this land. It was a new vineyard, remember? A new vineyard. Ask any maker of wine how long it takes for a vineyard to produce a crop. They'll tell you four to five years. Some scholars speculate that that was the exact amount of time needed for a squatter to lay claim on his land. Maybe they were holding out just long enough to claim the inheritance. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the owner's son, the owner of the vineyard's son, constituted a real threat to the tenant's control over the vineyard. And it, isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting how this parable sounds awfully familiar to Jesus' last encounter 
with the religious leaders in the temple. Remember last week's study? Mark 11, 27-33, we witnessed the religious leaders desperately trying to reassert their position as guardians, as owners of the temple. They wanted to claim their right over the temple. And they wanted Jesus to justify His actions in that temple. And here we see something very similar taking place in the parable of the vineyard. What would happen to the beloved son? Verse 8. So they took him and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. They took him and they killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, as you were reading this, as you're reading the story, um, a looming question was just going through my mind throughout my entire study of this. And again, I was taking this study and, and I was trying to take away the, the the correspondence, all the imagery, and just stay in the story for a moment. And as I'm staying just in the story. I'm asking myself, why in the world? Why in the world would the owner of the vineyard decide to send his son after all that had occurred beforehand? Why in the world would he do that? After sending servant after servant after servant, to his vineyard, only to see them being beaten, stoned, and killed time and time again. Why in the world would the owner of the vineyard send now his son to retrieve the harvest? What would possess him to think that sending his son would make any difference? Did the owner not realize that he was sending his son to certain death? Did he not realize the risk? Was he not aware of it? You know, why, I asked the question, why didn't he just give up? Why didn't the owner just give up? You know, uh, I've given up things that were mine when it wasn't worth it. Um, you know, like books. You know, you, you loan out a book and you, you know who has it. And you keep asking for it. And after a time, you're just like, you know what? Keep the book. It's not worth it. By the way, Tom, you, you got a book that... Two? Okay. And uh, where's John Varela? John, uh, Casey wants her Anne of Green Gables DVD series back. So I wanted to... just wanted you to know that... Okay, Squatter's Rights. Yes. It's just not worth it. The book, the DVD, it's not worth it. We give up material possessions when it's not worth it. We give them up. We don't lay claim to it anymore. We say, fine, take it. You've killed my servants. 
You've killed them time and time and time again. Why didn't the owner just give up? What does this tell us about the persistence of the vineyard owner? What does it mean that in the face of certain death, the owner of the vineyard is now sending his beloved son to collect the harvest? What does it tell us? You know what it tells us? It tells us that the vineyard must be worth it. The vineyard must be worth it. God's vineyard, understood as the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and now today I think we could rightly say God's vineyard can be extended to the church. Both the people of Israel and the church constitute God's vineyard, God's people. And God's vineyard is worth every penny to the Lord. God's vineyard, you and me, are so valuable to God that even the knowledge of certain death of His one and only beloved Son could not keep God from attempting to redeem His vineyard. The vineyard must be worth it. We must be worth it. Or else the vineyard owner would certainly not have bothered to send his son to certain death. I can think of no greater parable that speaks of the abundant love and sacrifice of God than this one. No, no one would have sent their son under those circumstances unless the vineyard was worth it. And friends, I say to you today, you uh, who are sitting here listening to this, God loves you so much. He values you so much. And if He didn't, we wouldn't be speaking of stories of Jesus Christ coming to earth. And I know for some of you, we question God's love. Maybe we think that God can't love us for something we did in the past. Maybe we just feel unlovely. Many of us question God's love. But friends, this parable says very clearly in no uncertain terms, the vineyard is worth it. It must be worth it. You are worth it to God. You are worth it to God. And if you've never accepted the love and forgiveness of God upon your life, I encourage you to do it even now as you're sitting here listening. The way in which you receive forgiveness, the way in which you receive in full the love of God is to believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ. Is to believe upon the One who went to claim you, the vineyard. I urge you, if you've never done so, right now in your heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all it takes. Trust Him for your salvation. But our story's not through. 
We still have to deal with the tenants. We still have to deal with the the vine dressers. Those who have attempted to keep God's vineyard away from redemption. Let's read through one last time the passage in Isaiah in its entirety this time and see, see its correspondence to Mark. Again, 5, 1, and now through 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and he also made a wine press in it. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Verse 5, And now please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. And break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord, of the Lord of hosts, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked, God looked for justice, but behold, he found oppression. He looked for righteousness, but behold, he only found a cry for help. Now there are parallels, but there are also some differences here. You see, in Isaiah, the vineyard itself is failing and in danger of judgment. By contrast, in Jesus' parable, it is the tenants, the vine dressers, of the vineyard who have failed and are now to be judged. Take a look at verse 9 in Mark 12. It says, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. What will the owner do to those tenants who have reaped no harvest, who have been leased the guardianship of the vineyard, and have brought forth no return, who have spitefully treated His servants, who have laid claim to a property that is not theirs, who have killed His own beloved Son, what will become of these wicked tenants? It says the owner will come and destroy the vine dressers. Jesus here in no uncertain terms is saying judgment is coming. Judgment is coming upon the so-called spiritual leaders of Israel. Judgment is coming because of their negligence and because of their arrogance. And the, the wealthy spiritual leaders of Israel themselves, most likely landowners, estate landowners themselves, have not only been demoted in the story to the status of a Jewish tenant farmer, 
But now they are ultimately losing the very vineyard they wrongfully claimed to own. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus is suggesting here that the mission God has entrusted to Israel, the mission of being a light to the Gentiles, the mission of demonstrating peace, love, justice, mercy, the mission of offering the salvation of God to a weary world, that mission would now be transferred to new tenants, to new vine dressers. It's very likely that Jesus is here alluding to the Gentiles, to the church, who would come after Israel and who would carry on the mission that Israel, that her leaders had very much failed to carry out. As we near the close of our study this morning, we we see a a mention of the Old Testament here by Jesus. A quotation from the Old Testament which sums up this powerful story. Jesus says, Have you not even read this Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. And Jesus is likening Himself now to the stone which was rejected by the builders. And the builders here, the imagery of the builders, was often meant to correspond to leaders, to scribes, to teachers, to builders, those who built up the people of Israel. Jesus is saying here that the builders have rejected the stone. Jesus Christ. But while they rejected, while... The guardians of Israel rejected the stone. That stone has gone on to become the chief cornerstone. The most precious, the most important stone in all of the work of the building. God can take something that's rejected in man's eyes and transform it into a marvelous work that incurs the praise of all. Now we've heard Jesus' words a lot today. We've heard His story. But one thing we haven't heard is is how the leaders have responded to Him. How the members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they've heard the story now and how do they respond? Verse 12, final verse. And they sought to lay hands on Jesus, but feared the multitude, for they knew Jesus had spoken the parable against them. And so they left Him and went away. They knew. They weren't ignorant. They understood the parable. And sometimes we get the uh, impression that um, the unregenerate or the, the, uh, the ones in the Scriptures who do not uh, believe in Jesus Christ can't understand Jesus' teaching. That's not entirely the case. Very often they do understand it. They understand it very clearly. And they don't like it. And here's one instance in which they very much understand the parable. It is no mystery to them who he's speaking to. They recognize it was spoken against them and they wanted to kill him for it. But they couldn't because they feared the multitude. Which is precisely what happened in our last story in Mark. Yet again, the fear of the crowd stifles the highest spiritual, political, and judicial leaders of Israel. And they cower behind the marveling crowds. They cower behind them. 
I want to leave us with uh, just two very simple closing thoughts today. There's not much else to take from this study than this. It is this. There's no good reason the vineyard owner would have sent his beloved son unless the harvest was as precious to him as his son. There's no good reason he would have done that. In like fashion, there's no good reason God would send Jesus to us unless we were as precious to God as Jesus Himself. That's powerful. Don't ever question God's love. A story like this reminds us shame on us for questioning His love. Jesus Christ shows unequivocally that God loves you. And you may not feel it all the time. You may not sense it all the time. You may think right now in your seat that God doesn't love me right now. But you know what? You're wrong. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Because there's no good reason God would have sent Jesus unless you were as precious to Him as Jesus Himself. Friends, the vineyard must be worth it. The vineyard must be worth it. You are worth it to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess. We confess that there are times that we question Your love for us. We confess there are times when we just don't feel You're on our side. Father, we know today You're on our side. We know that You wouldn't have done what You did with Your Son unless You counted us just as valuable as Him. And Father, we are so humbled by that truth. We can't believe You would think that highly of us. Father, thank You for Your love. Thank You that we can count on it. Thank You that we don't have to question it. All we have to do is open Your Word and see it displayed in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, that we were worth it to You. We love You. We appreciate and are so grateful for the love that You've shown us in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.